Hello, and welcome back to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Lucas Stock, and with me, as always, is... Jens Nelson. All right, yeah. As you know, as we know, this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Uh, Please join us as we explore, discuss, grow, and maybe even occasionally argue (laughs) as followers of Christ. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, Maybe not. Maybe. We're, we're fallen humans. Maybe maybe we'll get, you know, caught up in that. Maybe kind there's of. a softer word than argue. We'll just softly disagree. Softly disagree. <laughs> Depends on what is how soft we disagree, but it should always, <laughs> among brothers, it should always be soft. So right. um, anyway, uh, today's episode is a, I, I don't want to say different or special because it's, it's kind of, it's kind of not, but we're just really excited about it because it's a little bit. Um, more of a explore exploration of of you know some pretty at times nitty gritty theological sort of debates or um, disagreements, but also very you know very relevant and important ones, right? Um, and ones that lots of people at Bible colleges when they first get there spend all night. <laughs> Uh, debating with their roommates. If you um, haven't had like an all-night debate about this, then you probably didn't actually go to a Bible college. Yeah, it, at least not the Harvard of Bible college. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, is that Moody Bible Institute? Is that what is that what it's called? The Harvard of Bible colleges. Some people, some people do call it that. I thought it was just the the Bridal Institute of the Midwest. Yeah, both of those things. Well, neither of those things are true, but both of those things are. <laughs> also true our professors would <laughs> be so angry if we <laughs> they heard us talking about moody like that um so anyway as you probably have been able to read in the title of this episode uh we're going to be talking about uh something called tulip so well at least that's one way of expressing what we're going to be talking about it's not really the best way and we'll, we'll probably touch on that but um, Jen, do you want to explain what exactly Tulip is? Are, are we are we giving floral advice, guard, quarantine gardening advice today? We are, yeah. So my wife and I, we went for a walk today, and we saw a bunch <laughs> of these flowers, and I just I was really touched by them, and I thought we'd explain how to grow and cultivate tulips. Um, so we thank you for <laughs> tuning in. Uh, no, so um, yeah, so Tulip as an acronym, uh, it stands for something. It doesn't, you know, it's not talking about the flower. Um, and essentially, it's a reformed, um, Calvinistic way of explaining the doctrines of grace. You know, it talks about man's depravity, um, our sinfulness. It talks about the atonement and um, election, how we persevere in the faith and stuff like that. And it really, like, Tulip was born out of um, counter arguments to, like, the Arminian side of things. So um, the original followers of uh, Jacob Arminius, they sort of set forth their these five doctrines and held them up. And there was this thing called the remonstrance that was sort of arguing against those points and establishing what um, the Reformed confessional faith held to. And so that was like way back in the, you know, 15 and 1600s. And then uh, more recently in the, you know, 18 and 1900s into the um, 21st century, um, you know, Tulip was then sort of formed to create this easy to remember acronym so like if you've ever heard of calvinism if you've ever heard of john calvin and tulip it's not like john calvin was up on his you know his lectern preaching tulip like as 
a new dogma of the faith or something. Uh, first of all, how many, John, how many points? How, how, what am I trying to say? <laughs> Calvin, Calvin was a how many pointer Calvinist, do you think? So, so Calvin was trying to be a biblical Christian. <laughs> That's what I'll say. <laughs> he was not trying to create five points and create a new religion or a new denomination even. He was just trying to um, teach what he saw in Scripture. And so his followers... Uh, you know, people that were in his church and under his care, they sort of took his teachings and um, went into the world, all over the world with them. And so today we have a theological system known as Calvinism, which is sort of like, again, he wasn't trying to recreate Christianity. He wasn't trying to have a new religion, but was just a regular pastor. But it's sort of because of the era of history and what was going on in the world, uh, you know, in the Protestant Reformation, it just sort of birthed this sect of Christianity, you know, differenti- differentiating itself from Lutherans, from Anabaptists, from, um, you know, some of the other Protestant denominations. And um, so today, you know, Calvin- uh, Calvinism is is talked about. It's often misunderstood. There's a lot of, um, I think, caricatures and misrepresentations of what it teaches and a lot of people who really don't understand the doctrines of grace. And so I think that's sort of our motivation for wanting to get into this topic today. Um, Really, what we're talking about is the Reformed doctrines of grace. So if you um, consider yourself Reformed, if you don't really know what you consider yourself, um, we're going to be talking about those. And, you know, they're often represented by Tulip, even though I don't like Tulip um, per se. That's the way that it's most often represented. So we're just going to use it because that's what most people know. Mm -hmm. So you've used the phrase doctrines of grace um, a couple times, and, and obviously we're going to get into the specific doctrines and, and what they are, but can you maybe give like a bit of an explanation, like why are these doctrines considered doctrines of grace? Right. Um, what, what are they sort of talking about that they would get that title? So inherent in all of this, like what, what most fundamentally what Tulip um, and even what the first original five points that the Arminians put forth, like what they were trying to explain was basically man's sinfulness, um, like how we get from man's sinfulness to heaven one day. Um, you know, so we, when we talk about our our sin, our vileness, our wickedness, our perversity, um, the thing that separates us from a holy God, how, how, do, how do those people become holy, blameless, righteous, justified, glorified, and in heaven with Christ one day? How do we, what, how do we get there? Um, and so, you know, uh, the reformed doctrines of grace teach like man's fallenness. So man is sinful. We are depraved. We have a total inability to save ourselves. Um, you know, and then it goes into, um, looking at election, looking at the atonement and its extent and looking at how God draws his people to himself and, um, sort of lastly concludes almost most logically with if we're sinful, if we've been saved, um, if we've been drawn in, Will we persevere? Will we fall away? Um, what does it look like to um, now live this Christian life? So that's kind of why it's called the doctrines of grace, because it's it's about um, the way that God works in the world, how he has decreed things to be, how he has uh, drawn his people by his spirit, and how he causes them to persevere. So that's, I guess, the easiest way to explain it. Yeah, I think that's helpful, um, especially... You know, even for people who might be familiar with the TULIP acronym, or maybe, you know, you are a bright-eyed um, Bible college freshman, and you've had these debates, and you find yourself on one or the other side of them, like, I think it is important to remember, um, 
not tulip as an acronym but but these collection of this collection excuse me of reflections and and thoughts on biblical teachings regarding um, what it means for us to go from death to life what that looks like what that means um, ultimately while different people might have different perspectives on how successfully this collection of doctrinal um, descriptions succeed at um, at explaining those things I think I think it's very important and helpful regardless of what you believe about Calvinism or about these particular formulations of doctrine that that is what we're trying to do when we come up with these doctrines whether whether we whether we're talking about Calvinists uh, talking about tulip or we're talking about any other Christian group coming up with their own responses or their own ways of, of explaining these things um, that is definitely or I was gonna say it is the center it should be the center um, and the goal of our, of our attention and our doctrinal, discussions and debates um so that being said i think um we might as well just kind of hop hop into it um, all right i feel like we we've kind of introduced these doctrines fairly well um is there anything else that you wanted to say before we actually get into the to the t yeah there are a few things i have a couple introductory pieces of information as well as saying um, this episode might be a little bit longer than our normal episodes, but we think that it's better to con- have one really long contained episode as opposed to like five individual short episodes that are touching on each of the five points. So I guess maybe we should have done that right in the beginning, but I just wanted to say first an apology, but also like a thank you if you do um, get through all of this. But we think it's important to um, give these things the fair amount of time as we look at them and discuss them. And I think it's also helpful to say that you know, we've said it before that I am in the Reformed camp and you are in the Anglican camp. And so we're going to have some differences and some disagreements. Um, And one thing that I've really liked about our podcast so far, like going into it, I knew that we would have disagreements. I mean, I knew that this episode when it would come eventually would be one of disagreement and there's probably some other ones. But like on, on the whole, like by and large, we have far more agreement than we have disagreement, which to me is really like encouraging and really, um, like cool to see because I think in our minds we often not you and me I'm saying like Christians in general we often focus more on our points of disagreement than our points of agreement and we sort of like forget that we are still brothers that we are going to be in glory um, for eternity together and so as we even navigate this we're not trying to be dogmatic we're not trying to bind anybody's consciences we're not trying to say this is what you have to believe or you can't be a Christian we're just merely presenting the information to you so that you can have an informed opinion and decide for yourself um, so uh, sort of as we now introduce more of, of this idea I think it's it's helpful to say that that God always does as he pleases that's something that we find in scripture that the Lord will do as he pleases um, and that he initiates, sustains, and completes the salvation of everyone who goes to heaven. And what I mean by that is we do not get ourselves to heaven. We don't save ourselves. We don't sustain ourselves. We don't even complete our our glorification. Like, this is all a work of Christ. Um, and so what God is pleased to do, he does do. And so it is sort of our job to learn to be pleased with what pleases God and we ought to conform our will to his. I mean, that's sort of inherent in the the Lord's prayer. Uh, You know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
uh, you know, not our will, but your will be done. And I think it's also helpful to note here that Calvinism is more than the five points. You know, it's not like TULIP is an acronym that describes all of Calvinism as a theological whole. Um, it's, like I've said, like the, the five points are a way of looking at and thinking about salvation, looking at and thinking about the world. Um, but the Calvinistic way of thinking is rooted in the confidence that God is sovereign, that he is the ruler of the cosmos, that he is in control of everything and everyone, um, and he is controlling everything according to his good and perfect purpose. And when I say controlling, I'm not saying he's like the master puppet maker who's even controlling my lips as we speak, um, because all persons think and act freely, uh, yet all the while God is still sovereignly working, superintending um, all things so that his eternal purpose is infallibly accomplished. And I mean, the reality is, is that this is a great mystery. Uh, you know, when we think about divine sovereignty and human responsibility, sometimes people say sovereignty versus free will. Uh, you know, that that's a different debate because I don't know that we have a free will, um, but we have a will and we still are able to choose. I think our will is bound by sin because while we're in this world, um, we cannot choose to not sin. It is inherent to our nature and our will. Um, and so when we talk about God's divine sovereignty, his knowledge, his um, working in the world and our will, it seems like a mystery how those things can work together. And there was a, a helpful quote where uh, a pastor named William J. said that, um, I see the two ends of the chain. So he sees divine sovereignty and he sees human responsibility. And he says that the middle is underwater. So the middle of this chain is underwater, yet the connection is as real as it is invisible. I think that's just like a helpful way because as, as humans in this world right now, we do not understand how sovereignty and human responsibility and human will work in tandem because in some way they do. So I think that that was a helpful um, clarification and introduction before we jump into all this. So unless you have anything else, do we just want to get to the T? Yeah, let's get, let's get straight to it. Cool. So the T of TULIP uh, stands for total depravity. Um, Maybe you've heard this expressed as total inability. That's another way of thinking about it. Um, but essentially what we're talking about is man's sinfulness. We're talking about uh, the fact that, you know, as Paul says in Romans, that, uh, you know, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Um, all are fallen. Uh, John six forty four says that no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Um, sin has so corrupted and disordered the human race that unless God intervenes in a person's life, he or she will never repent and believe. So like basically left to our own devices, if we're just going to continue in sin, uh, we have an inability to get ourselves out of that. We do not have an ability to, to save ourselves. And where some people have um, misunderstood total depravity, um, it to so total depravity does not mean that every person is as bad as they could be. It's not like we're like a bunch of Hitlers walking around on the earth, uh, you know, as evil as can be, because I'm guessing that even Hitler himself probably had people that he loved, probably had people that he was close to, that he had like, you know, he was probably buddy-buddy with his Nazi buddies, you know. Um, it's not like he just absolutely hated everything and everyone. So like in a sense, he was not as bad. Like no one can be as bad as they can be. Um, but rather, total depravity means uh, that every component of human nature has been infected with sin. So it's not, we're not totally... Um, 
we're not totally saturated with sin, um, but we're there is a total distribution. What I mean, like picture picture like a rag. You know, if you ever have done dishes, I'm sure all of us have. If you take your dish, your dish rag, and submerse it in the water, it is as wet and as saturated as it can be because it's completely submerged in water. So we're not talking about the total depravity in that sense. But if you take that rag out and if you wring it dry, it's not actually completely dry. It's still going to be wet, but it's not as wet as it can be. If that is that like a helpful clarification kind of um, of what we're talking about um, when we're saying total inability. Uh, because we know that those who are are in the flesh, so those living in unrepentant sin, we cannot please God. That's Romans 8.8. 8. We are dead in our trespasses. That's, you know, another thing that the Bible says. We have no hope in the world. Uh, the unbeliever is hostile towards God and really does not see the problem with their sin. So again, we're talking about total depravity, total, inab- total inability, man's um, inability to save themselves, to do anything about the problem of sin in the world. And so, you know, when when God gives us commands that we cannot keep, at least part of the reason is so that we realize our in a, that we have an inability and we look to him for help. Um, and so, in one sense, God does require us to do something that we cannot do, uh, you know, unless he draws us. Because um, he cannot, uh, we, we cannot make ourselves believe what we think is foolish. So, if, if we're just thinking about like our friend who isn't a Christian, living in the world, living in his flesh, he's not just going to wake up one day and suddenly be like, I'm going to become a Christian. Um, Because left to ourselves, we do not have that ability to do that. We are totally saturated, or no, no, sorry, not totally saturated, but we are um, totally, like sin is totally distributed throughout our whole, our will, um, our affections, our desires. And so, um, yeah, essentially what I'm trying to say is that uh, total inability teaches that when left to our own devices, we could never choose to come to God, if that makes sense. Do you want to uh, add anything there? I think another way of expressing that same idea is that what we're saying, or what this doctrine is saying, um, what, what we would say scripture teaches is that all people are living under sin in a fallen world and in, in a fallen state due to sin. And I think you used the word infected earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, we are all affected by sin and infected by sin. And that sickness needs an external, um, an external medicine to, to heal it, to, right. to go with that analogy. And it's not something that, you know, left to its own devices, cancer is not going to just stop ravaging someone's body left to that, that person left to their own devices. They're not going to be able to like, you know, just will it hard enough and defeat the cancer that way. They need something to come in and, and outside of themselves, bigger than themselves to help treat and, and fight that cancer um, right. and remove it. And ultimately I think that's a, a, a different analogy to to get at at what we're talking about is that sin has completely infected humanity not just the really bad people or the people we don't like or the um you know certain types of people at different times of history or anything like that but um all people are affected and infected by sin and so we need you know the conclusion is we need a savior right Um, and I, i think that's sort of um 
what the T points us to in, yeah. in Tulip. The, 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 the total inability um, doesn't just tell us that we can't save ourselves, but it tells us we need to be saved because right. we are we are totally um, you know, under the authority of sin uh, in our own natural state. Yeah, and which is, I guess, why I think we don't have a free will. You know, we talk about that sometimes, you know, if you've ever taken a philosophy class or even maybe discussed it with some, you know, theology buddies or something. But I, I do not think that humans have a free will in the true sense of what that means. Because like you said, we are um, bound to sin. We are, um, you know, as Genesis 6-5 says, that every intention of the thought of man's heart is only evil continually. You know, that's what that's what God said of the people living in Noah's day. And you know, again, to quote Paul, he says that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so like if we were to stop here, it'd be like, man, what hope do we have in the world? If if we're if this is the state of our sickness, um, if this is if this is who we are, then then what hope do we have? Because we cannot save ourselves yeah <laughs> and it would be a pretty bleak um a pretty bleak place to stop too right because because the answer they you know the answer is pretty clearly we have none <laughs> well i think um if we're if we're good on the t then uh we'll go to the u yeah yeah all right keep it moving all right, keep it moving. So the, the U stands for unconditional election. So this is a word that I think <laughs> often uh, causes a lot of uh, maybe uneasiness, a lot of confusion. Uh, but the reality is, is that some form of the word election or predestination appears about 50 times in the New Testament. So you must believe something about it because it's there. It's in the text. You know, uh, Peter writes to the elect exiles. Um you know, Paul writes in Ephesians one about um, about the elect. It's 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 saturated in the New Testament. Um, so you cannot claim to hold to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture and reject a doctrine of election. Um, so the question is like, what is the doctrine of election? What do we do um, with this doctrine? So do we think about it as some sort of elite club that only the chosen get into without having to do anything? Um, that's that's probably not the the best way or even the right way to think about it. Um, the Bible teaches that before God had created anyone or anything, He decided that He would choose or elect some humans to be His adopted children, and this is something that no one deserves. I mean, this is something that we you know again He He knows that we're we're going to be fallen. It's not like the fall like caught God off guard. Like even in creating the world, He knew um, the ramifications of what would happen. And so um, this is something that we do not deserve. And so when we speak of unconditional election, what it means is that God did not look down the tunnel of time and foresee any condition in the elect that prompted him to choose them. So that's why we say unconditional. Um, You know, it's not as if you or I had some sort of superior intellect. It's not as though um, we had, you know, a heart of gold that just really loved God. Um, because as we've already said, we're all sinners and no one is righteous. And so when, before the foundations of the world, um, God decreed, God um, decided that he was going to save some people um, as his own. And um, I guess since he knew his chosen people along with the rest of mankind would fall into sin, 
God's, uh, God planned to save them from their sin. He also planned or predestined all the means to bring about their salvation. So he predestined that Christ would redeem them and that the spirit would enlighten and enliven them. Um, and so what, what, what this, maybe it, maybe it's helpful to first talk about some alternatives to unconditional election to sort of understand what it is teaching. Um, so when we're talking about, uh, when we're talking about it, maybe it'll be a little, a little bit more clear. So you, you could hold, for instance, to something called universal salvation. So this teaches that God elects everyone and everyone goes to heaven. Um, obviously, this has its own problems biblically because we do not think that everyone gets to go to heaven. So we would not believe in some sort of universalism or universal salvation. So that's sort of off the table. Um, and, uh, you know, sorry, here, let me pull up this part. Blah, 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 blah. All right. So another alter, um, another example. So there's universal salvation. Um, another one, another one would be universal election. Uh, this is summed up by saying that essentially, you know, God cast one vote for you, Satan casts one vote against you, and so you are the deciding vote. So like this asserts that God chooses everyone, but because not everyone goes to heaven, it assumes that basically maybe God lost two to one to us and Satan um, when someone doesn't go to heaven. So it, it, again, universal election would say that everybody who has ever lived, everybody who's, that's ever existed has been elect. Um, but because not everybody goes to heaven, there must have been some other like reason that that happened. And it's because you cast one vote and Satan cast one vote. And that was a two to one win versus, you know, God and your vote being on his side. Um, and so here's the thing. If, if God chose everyone to be saved, then election is virtually meaningless because it doesn't actually accomplish anything. So why would we even speak of election if, if God is going to save um, or elect everyone? Um, if God's choosing a person indicates that he intends for that person to be saved. So if, if God elected everybody, but not everybody gets to go to heaven, then either God is able uh, not able to carry out his intentions or else he might not be very skilled at arranging circumstances. Um, so as I said earlier, those who have a problem, you know, I think with unconditional election, they, they sort of see um, when they hear the word election, they think of it as being unfair. They think of it as being like, well, that doesn't sound very right that God has only chosen um, some people. Um, you know, some people think that it means that, you know, some people have never had the opportunity to be, the opportunity to be saved. Um, but I mean, did we really need the doctrine of election to bring this fact to our attention. So like if we think about, um, you know, Israel in the Old Testament, for example, we, we read that God favored Israel, that God, um, you know, made it plain that not all people had an equal opportunity to know him. Uh, you know, Ephesians 2.12 is a passage where Paul reminds his Gentile audience that they were at one time alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and they were strangers to the covenants of promise. So they had no hope and they were without God in the world. Like that's sort of the reality of the old covenant is that God entered into a covenant with a select group of people and that it was to the exclusion of some others. Um, but even if, Israel, if I could was, just, if, yeah. if I could just butt in, I, I do kind of want to push back a little bit on that in the sense that, um, God elected Israel to be his chosen people for the express purpose of being a light to the Gentile nations that surrounded her. Well, right. So I, I, I yeah. don't know that we should or can textually say 
that Israel's unconditional election as God's people versus, you know, the Hittites' election as God's people, it, it was to the exclusion of the Hittites. Well, right. In, this, right. in the sense that um, Israel's purpose was to be a priest, a nation of priests to the surrounding right. nations. So, it, you know, Israel's election, I, I think, may, might throw a, a little bit of a wrench in things just in the sense of um, what that entails did not entail every other people group or every other person being excluded from knowledge of God because right. we see we see Gentiles coming into the Commonwealth all throughout the Old Testament yeah. Ruth and, we and see, Rahab mm-hmm, yeah and we see God's ultimate purpose from the very beginning when he first cuts the covenant with Abraham to be to bless all nations. Right. So I just kind of want to bring Yeah, that. I think Not, I, maybe yeah. I misspoke a little bit. I wasn't trying to say that, like, there was no possibility for anybody else. Like, it was only Israel. I guess what I meant was that on their own, apart from any sort of connection to Yahweh, they would have had no hope in the world. I mean, sort of as Paul says in Ephesians 2, like, you of were course. alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, you know, not partakers in the covenants, not partakers in, um, you know, the 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 feasts and the appointed times and stuff like that um and again I, I, what i'm what i'm trying to say is that the even in the old testament it's it's a picture mm-hmm. of the greater unconditional election of his people um you know throughout all of human history um because we know that now um now that the new covenant has been established now that christ has come and died for his people uh we know that that salvation isn't tied to a ethnic body. It's not like you have to be a Jew to be a believer. Um, it's, it, it goes outside of those natural bounds and is, um, you know, goes out into all the world. And that's sort of like, like you're saying, like I, so I totally agree. And so I, yeah, I should be more precise in what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate here. Um, but maybe, so just to kind of, again, help clarify too. So, um, another option you know that we've talked about universal salvation universal election another one would be a conditional election and so this is the view that believes that god chooses some and not others but they say that knowing everything he looked into the future as it were to foresee that they would choose him so you know before the foundation of the world god looked into the future knowing all things and foresaw you know that johnny and jim and jens and lucas would choose him um and so when he saw that they would repent and believe, he elected them. So that's why it's called conditional election. It's based on certain conditions. Um, But the problem, again, with conditional election is that it presents us with a God who reacts and not a God who who plans. Um, But again, it it also has a problem when we think about our depravity, our our inability, our sinfulness when left to ourselves. Um, And so I think that's just another another problem here. And so... um, maybe as a a way to understand um unconditional election again when we when we when we bear in mind that we did not choose him because we were more spiritually minded or intelligent um you know again we were part of the world that did not know god and so i'm trying to think of a, a good way to transition here is there anything that you wanted to add about um unconditional election here i think that it's it's really important to keep in mind that um you know we're told one of the most challenging and beautiful passages in scripture is we're told that faith is a gift from God, not of works that, that nobody can boast. 
And what that means is that it's not because of us that God, you know, chooses to save us. It's not because of us that um, we're able to respond to God's grace with faith. Not that we don't respond to God's grace in faith, but but it's not, when I say because of us, I mean, it's not just us on our own, you know, getting lucky and making the right decision or, or being caught on a good day and making the right decision. It's God is in, incredibly gracious to to us um, as we respond to him and as we, as we, um, you know, receive his gifts. And there's something I want to read um, from article, if I can read Roman numerals, article 17 from the 39 articles of religion. Mm. Um, article 17 is of predestination and election. And it, it talks a lot about sort of what it is um, that God has decreed to um, deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ. Um, da, 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 da. You know, it goes through just sort of the process of, of that. Um, and it, it says that the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. Um, because it reminds us of God's love and grace to us. And um, it, you know, it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ. Um, And it, as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God. The flip side to that is for curious and carnal persons lacking the spirit of Christ to have continually before their eyes, the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall whereby the devil doth thrust them either into desperation or into wretchlessness of a most unclean living, no less perilous than desperation. So it's a little bit funky to me, this article, and it it just kind of seems like that second part is almost kind of silly. Not silly, but it's unexpected. It's like, whoa, where'd that come from? Because these are supposed to be the articles of religion that are explaining sort of the contours of, of the basic, you know, questions of faith that were, coming up in the 16th century um but i think that one of the places where i i I really you know struggle with a more typically or or maybe stereotypically reformed or calvinist uh you know expression of the faith is when we start touting election as a central tenet of the faith right um and i'm not saying this i want to be careful because i'm not saying this to somehow um, try and say that God doesn't elect some people or to say that we don't have to wrestle with what that means or to say that election is not taught in scripture or not important. But I do think that it's a little bit, you know, as, as the articles say, I would say it, it's dangerous to speak of election as a central tenet in the sense that it it really doesn't, serve you know the the mission of the church to harp on this mysterious decree of god um that's above and beyond our comprehension to the point where that's how we're leading in conversations or that's how we're framing the entire gospel and i think that that's a that's a potential weakness of of calvinism particularly certain strains Mm-hmm. where election sort of becomes the almost like the the logical you know starting point of salvation and it's like election is this like prime 
you know, first thing that God does, and then everything else is him working out election, as opposed to sort of God using election to work out salvation in time for right. um, those who who are chosen in Christ. Um, I think that's a really helpful clarification. I, and I and like I'm not that. saying, like, that means you need to double-check if someone's a Christian before you talk about election. You know, oh, is everybody in the room a Christian? Okay, good. We can talk <laughs> about election. That's not what I mean. And, and that, that doesn't necessarily make it any less uh, challenging of a doctrine or even... Hmm even potentially painful in certain circumstances to, to, to dwell on. Um, and maybe dwell is the wrong word to meditate on and to reflect on. Cause we need to, because it's in scripture. Um, God has chosen to reveal to us the, the, you know, whatever we want to say about it, the fact that um, mankind has members who are elect in Christ. So, um, but, but what I do think it means is, is to kind of like what we did at the beginning is I, when we're talking about election, I really like to frame sort of where I'm coming from with that conversation in in terms of I don't want to I don't want to like ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist just because it makes me less comfortable and I also don't want to pretend that this is the central teaching of scripture or the yeah. key the key um to understanding the character of God or something. And I'm not trying to accuse you of doing that. I'm just saying no, right. um it's a danger. Like, that article I think is very interesting because it it, I, as far as I remember, it's the only article. I should have checked this, but I think it's the only article that has sort of that, you know, a qualifier almost. Here, you know, here's the doctrine. Be careful what you do with it because it has, <laughs> you know, it talking about it has dangers. Right. Um, and I mean, talking about anything has dangers. You know, of course, I'm sure I've already said something that has, you know, unwittingly, you know, enraged somebody who's who's you know typing up a response blog posts now or something but you know right. what i mean just in terms of of, of what i'm trying to get at in, in in terms of framing the importance of election to be not too great and not too little um as well as overstepping you know what we're capable of knowing about election because exactly because we are humans we're, we are limited in our understanding <laughs> right <laughs> but i think i think it's helpful to just i i, I think i want to read real quick ephesians part of ephesians one Mm -hmm. um, you know, starting with verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So again, there in that verse alone, there was like two or three times where the words predestined came up. Um, you know, foreknowledge, this plan. And and I think like you're saying, some of the danger that people uh, fall into, some of the traps is uh, we're not saying that the elect are born saved. It's not like you can just be uh, on some remote island, but because you are elect that you're just going to get to heaven. Um, like God has appointed means to save his elect. So throughout time, throughout the history of the world, throughout even, you know, 2020, uh, 2020 COVID-19 season, uh, God is using means um, to bring about the salvation of his people, to bring people into um, 
into his fold. And I think some of the implications of election, um, and we sort of get this from from Romans 9, uh, that having godly parents does not guarantee that a person will be one of God's elect. Just because you're born to two um, godly people, you know, as Jacob and Esau were, not both of them were chosen. Um, the election of Jacob instead of Esau was unconditional. That's another implication. Like we, that's another way we can see unconditional election because these boys were not even born yet and they had do- done nothing either good or bad. Um, and again, one of, one of God's purposes in election is to make it abundantly clear that salvation is not because of works, um, but because of him who calls. So it's because of what he has done. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's helpful. Um, yeah. And the conversation, you know, because this conversation isn't complicated or long enough already, right. um, I'm going to bring up something that, that I think is important too. And I think this is a good, a good time is, is what, you know, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not asking for a super specific, you know, response or whatever, but like, what is the, what, if anything, what is the corporate side of election? What does it mean? Is election a purely individual thing and the reason i ask is like you bring up jacob and esau in romans 9 if i remember correctly uh you know J- jacob i've loved esau i've hated um that's that well i know i think that's what paul is is quoting it's from malachi 1 um but he's not talking about esau the man and jacob the man in malachi 1 he's talking about israel and edom he's talking about the nations who came from esau and jacob um and just to to clarify like um, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Then, next sentence, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says. So he's talking about Edom, the nation that's descended from Esau now. So it's interesting to me that Paul quotes, you know, in this chapter that has a lot to say about election, he he's quoting a a the election of nations um so i i just kind of want to bring that up not to derail the conversation as much as to um just bring up that other dimension that we haven't really mentioned yet in addition to being unconditional are we talking about individuals or or corporate you know bodies of individuals um and and what that means can get really complex i guess and and you know unnecessarily specific for what we're trying to talk about here. Um, but I don't know. I just, I just feel like it's worth, it's worth bringing that up in, well, yeah. in, in a conversation about election in general. Um, and I, and I, I'm not sure if you had any, like, just, you know, I didn't warn you I was going to go here, like any <laughs> off the cuff kind of, kind of thoughts on that, like um, in terms of how, how much we should be thinking about the corporate, dimension when we're thinking about election or if we should be primarily speaking and thinking about individuals yeah and i think just one of the again one of the dangers in this conversation about uh, election is sometimes it can almost culminate in this idea that we're like this elite club like we are the elect and you guys are not we're the ones that get all the blessings and we're going to heaven and you guys are not um and so, I don't know, there's, there's, I don't think it's even really beneficial to, um, 
there there are certain circumstances in which like why even bring up election like like what i'm trying to say is like at the end of the day those whom one day get to glory those who will be in the presence of christ forever we know that those are the ones who were chosen that got that were called that god um redeemed because that's I mean that's sort of like the logical like how do we get from being sinners to being here well god worked in our lives in such a way that now we are here um and so when we're talking about individual versus corporate it's like a it's, it's almost like a yes and a yes um because god saves individuals um but again if we're talking about means god does not save an individual again in some remote place that's all by themselves um the means are the corporate aspects of it, whether it's a, a body that is gathered, you know, in a large church or a small house church, um, you know, depending on context and situation and circumstance, God is going to work in the world in, in you know, a myriad of ways. Um, and so as a whole, and this sort of touches on something we've talked about in previous episodes, is that Christianity isn't summed up by like Jesus, me and my Bible. Um but the Christian life is one of a body. It is a it is a collection of people, and so when we talk about election in that sense, like it is corporate, and it is we're talking about a people for God's own possession. And so I don't know if that helps, I guess, answer your question, or if the, if I'm not even answering your question, but that's sort of like what comes to mind. No, yeah, I think that. Um... You know, honestly, I don't know if it really answers my question, and I'm more than okay with that because I don't really know how to begin answering that question either. <laughs> well, I think maybe it's also like so. I'm, I have Romans nine pulled up here, and maybe just I'm not going to read it all, obviously, but maybe our listeners should like like read Romans nine and wrestle with that for a little bit. Um, and but like the the argument of Romans nine is is Paul is writing to a group of people to a church that is predominantly Jewish, and they're wrestling with the reality of gentiles being grafted into this covenant um and he you know he says not all who are descended from israel belong to israel so paul makes the statement that as a collective corporate national entity not all who descend through a bloodline of israel belong to israel so there's a lot to even ponder in that sentence and not all are children of abraham because they are his offspring but through isaac shall your offspring be named uh, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Again, so I don't know if if that helps add clarification to, like, just because you descend from Israel, just because you're a child of Abraham does not make you Israel, does not make you the offspring. Um, but it's that, that promise that um, God has chosen in his divine sovereignty to choose some um, and to pass over others. I guess that's... Um, you know, this is we, this episode is going to be five hours long if we keep going. We're only on point two here, but um, this sort of brings up the question, and I know that this is maybe where you have some disagreement on. Um, so, if if people are predestined as elect people to heaven, um, does God predestine people to hell? And um, there are, there are different answers to this question that people have posed. Um, but whether you believe in an unconditional election or a conditional election. Um, you basically have to ask yourself, does God know everything? If our answer is yes, then we must wrestle with the reality that God created humans who will not go to heaven. Like that's just sort of a reality that there are people in this world who will not go to heaven. God is the one who created them. Um, so what do we like? What do we think about that? 
Um, if our answer is no, that God doesn't know everything, well, then we have even more problems and we're not biblical. Um, so there's a little bit of wrestling that needs to happen here. Um, we say that, again, Reformed tradition, they say that election to everlasting life is unconditional, whereas election to eternal punishment is conditional. Um, and I don't even like using the word election when we're talking about eternal punishment um, personally, um, because God does not send anyone to hell. He does not, it's not as though those people did not have a choice. Because again, we're talking about divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Um, he sends, like, pe people go to hell because they are sinners who willingly, again, willingly rebel against him. They're not, it's not like they have no will and can't do anything else, but they, they willingly rebel, they willingly choose their sin. Um, and again, at the end of the day, every human is deserving of God's wrath. Like the punishment for sin is death. Um, so God would be completely fair and just to send everyone to hell. Um, and so, you know, it's in his mercy that he has chosen some when he didn't have to choose anybody. And that's, again, I, this is where it makes a lot of people uneasy and it gets into like, you know, a thousand other different questions. So maybe we don't even try to plumb those depths because, you know, we don't even necessarily have a good answer to this mystery of how um, all this works. So I don't know if you if you want had anything you wanted to add there. No, I think that I think that just this shows even just trying to sort of like even just trying to scratch the surface reveals yeah. so much to Complexity. this conversation. Right. Um. It, it's com it's complex. It's challenging. It's confusing. You feel like you get a handle on it, and then something else comes up, and it gives um, me a stomach ache. <laughs> <laughs> um. And I think that. I think that what what's important, like we, you know, since this is going to be such a long episode, maybe it's worth it's worth reiterating this a couple times throughout the episode. But these are supposed to be sort of starting points to wrestle through and think through um, what God has revealed to us. We're not telling you believe in tulip, don't believe in tulip, believe this or that. We're trying to give you tools to think through, wrestle through, pray through, and discuss these kinds of of questions. And, and I think that election in particular for all Christians is an incredibly difficult question and difficult in more senses than one. Like it's hard to wrap our head around it. It's also potentially hard emotionally um, to talk about for a variety of reasons. And um, it's, it's hard because it's so far above the way we work and the way our brains are capable of working in the sense that we're talking about, you know, things that are going on in, in the mind of God, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's not, it's not exactly like, you know, easy stuff, you know, right. mentally. So I think that, I think that that's, if you're comfortable, I think it might be a good time to move on yeah, to, I think so too. To, to the, to the next, the next doctrine. Um, All right. So let's, here let's we go. That. Oh no. <laughs> uh, all right. So the third uh, letter here is the letter L and it stands for limited atonement. Um, maybe on the, that's, that's almost like a negative. It's uh, positive versus negative. It's negative in the sense that you're limiting something um, on the positive side. Uh, there have been people who describe this as particular redemption. Um, and so most basically what this teaches is it's, it's a teaching on the extent of the atonement. Um, so when we're talking about, so we talked about people being depraved. We talk about God choosing people in eternity past. So then how did God bring about 
enacting salvation in those people. Um, like, cause Christ came, he died upon a cross, um, for sinners. So to what extent, um, does he die for, does he die for sinners? Does he die for the entire world, um, making salvation possible for all, but effective only for the elect? Does he die only for the elect? Um, this is sort of what we're getting at. And so the reformed view is one of, of limited atonement. It is, uh, it is not unlimited, but it has a limit to it. Um, and so I'm going to make a couple, um, remarks here before we, we jump in. So let's see, uh, so if we're going to talk about a proper object of saving faith, um, no one can be saved apart from what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's that's sort of like a no-brainer when we're talking about atoning sacrifices. Um, but the Bible proclaims that a person gets saved, quote-unquote, gets saved when he receives Christ. And it does not say that a person gets saved through belie- merely believing that Jesus died for him. And, and I'm going to clarify what I mean by that. Christ himself is the object of saving faith, not some part of his work. It's not that we, it's true that his work, that Jesus did die for sinners. um, But when we, when we think about the object of faith, our object, what we cling to, like if you were to ask someone, what makes you a Christian? What gives you hope? You do not say um, some part of his work separated from the other parts, but Christ himself and his whole work is the object of our faith. Um, because nowhere in the Bible will we find, you know, anything like if you believe that Jesus died for you, you will be saved merely. Like if that's all you have to do is believe that Jesus died for you. Um, the object of of saving faith is not a doctrine, but a, a person receiving him and his entire work. You know, he lived for you, he died for you, and he intercedes for you now. Those are three things that Jesus is doing, well, did, has done, and is continuing to do. Um, so again, this might seem like a weird way to begin discussing limited atonement, but I want to make it clear that you can believe all the right doctrines and still be lost if you do not receive Christ. And, you know, this is maybe even you, Lucas, but like when I think about my own Christian walk, like there were things that I correctly believed about God, but I would not have considered myself, um, a believer. Um, and then conversely, you can be wrong about a lot of important doctrines and be saved if you receive and rest upon Christ alone as he is presented in the gospel. Because even now, you know, Lucas, you and I will be the first people to admit that there are probably times where we are not right about everything. It's impossible for us to be right, right all the time. Definitely. More than so, just sometimes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's, that's what I'm trying to get at here is that like our, our faith, the object of our faith is not a doctrine. To say that Jesus died for us would be to um, be putting our hope or like putting the object of our faith in the atonement when Christ is the object. Does that make sense? Like, is that a helpful clarifier or am I just like really confusing in what I'm saying here? I mean, I think it makes Before sense. I, I do, you know, Romans ten nine comes to mind. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right. So would you say that, you know, believing God raised him from the dead and confessing that he's Lord, would you say that that encompasses sort of what you're talking about that encompasses clinging to him and resting on him? in right. his entire person and work would you like is paul kind of just you know or or maybe maybe you know believing that god raised him from the dead is is, is maybe like the 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 core nugget of of like which everything else is is connected to like i, I guess i'm just trying to wrap my mind yeah. around like what how that how that squares together because i totally right. get what you're saying and i agree that we are say you know we're saved by union with Christ. We're not saved merely you know. by belief in a doctrine. Right. That's what I'm trying. What I'm trying to say is that our 
again, when we're talking about salvation, when we're talking about um, how a sinner becomes a saint, like I'm trying to say that it's it's not merely confessing with your mouth a doctrine. It's not as though, and what I'm trying to get at here is like, you know, sinner's prayer, um, walking down the aisle, just raising your hand in a church service. I'm not saying that nothing happens in those minutes, in, in those instances, like where a sinner prays a prayer or where um, someone raised their hand in a service that was, you know, some sort of revival. Um, but I think that there is often a, a misunderstanding that that is the object of your saving faith, that because I prayed a prayer, because I um, raised my hand, that is not the object of your faith. That was an action that you took, but Christ is the object. Like, does that, does that maybe help clarify? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, I, just, I wanted to start with that. And so we'll go forward by saying, uh, what is limited atonement then? So now that we've kind of established that, again, as I stated, I prefer to call it particular redemption um, because it better reflects the idea that we are primarily asserting a positive doctrine by emphasizing what Christ accomplished rather than contradicting a doctrine where we think we, he emphasized what he did not. Um, so particular redemption teaches that Christ died only for the elect for the elect and his death makes the salvation of the elect certain so again this is what the traditional reformed view on um, this doctrine is that christ died on the cross for his people for his sheep for his bride for his church if you want to call it elect that's fine um, and his death makes their salvation certain so that's that's the uh, the easiest way to describe um, limited atonement um, and here's the thing and I'm, I'm curious what, what you think about this, Lucas, um, unless you are un a universalist. So unless you believe that everyone is going to go to heaven, um, everyone believes that the atonement is limited in some way, whether it's limited in sufficiency, efficiency, or in its application, but it's going to be limited in some way. And I'm curious because I know before we recorded, you mentioned that you would consider like you hold to unlimited atonement. Um, but I think regardless of, um, again, unless you're a universalist, all of us are in some way or another limiting the atonement. And I'm curious what your, um, what your thoughts are on that. So I, I think that that sort of flips the script a little bit and it's, it's not using, I think it's using limited in a different sense, if okay. that makes sense. I think it's, I don't think it's helpful to speak in that way because I, I don't think that your choices are universalism and and a universal uh, final salvation or uh, limited atonement slash particular redemption as as the reformed tradition um, teaches. Right. I think that um, to say that the atonement is unlimited is different than saying that every person will be finally saved. Um, so I think that I would... I would object to the um, to saying like like I, I don't it's not inconsistent to say the atonement was unlimited um, final salvation is not I think that we that we'd be using limited in, in sort of a different way so okay. so I so in this if we want to you know get bogged down in, in the semantics of, of limited versus unlimited that you know I don't think that's as helpful as much as um, sort of explaining what exactly the differences are, um, y you know. So we'll just use the phrases limited atonement and unlimited atonement going forward. Okay. 
Um, That's helpful. I think I think it's just easier, and, and those are the typical terms that you find. You know, that's just the way the way that it that it works, or maybe you know, yeah, that's just the way it works. Maybe maybe okay. we use per- particular redemption and, and unlimited atonement, whatever. Okay. Um, so, so so yeah, then, like th- this is where Tulip loses me um, fully. I know I brought right. up some like some you know I, I I think the way election shakes out. Um, like I said, I don't necessarily like the way it always does in in, in the more Calvinistic reformed uh, tradition. But th- but 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 limited atonement the the L of Tulip is where I really um, fall off the map, and I think that that is it's it's definitely my strong. It's not my only disagreement. Um, but it's my strongest one with with okay. the system. Um, so, so can we can we yeah. maybe maybe so we, we've we've sort of established a point of disagreement. Um, before going any further, can we maybe establish another point of agreement when talking about the atonement? Um, so, do you think that Christ's death was a substitutionary penal atonement? I think that that is one aspect. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying that's the only. I know there are other. Again, when we talk about um, theories on the atonement, I think that's just sometimes ridiculous. Like I think it's yes, yes, and yes sometimes. Right. But like at least is it is it? Can we say that it is substitutionary, where Jesus died in the place of sinners, and that in a penal sense it satisfied and paid a penalty? Like, can we do we do we agree on that? Yeah, I I, I think that because like you said we don't i don't i don't think scripture leaves us with the option to just pick a single quote unquote right. theory of the atonement and say that's the only one um i think that there are a number of ways that scripture and the church have spoken about the atonement and a number of aspects of the atonement and i think that one of the things that Christ's death does for us is that he dies in our place and that he pays our debt and I think that there are other things he does, like right. like what we're, what we're sort of alluding to. Um, the Christus but, but I I do think that that is something that that we see in Scripture pretty clearly that there is this legal aspect of salvation, um, and, and and you know, part of part of Jesus's death on the cross was 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 accomplishing that that legal part. Okay, so one one text that sort of helps us clarify that would be Isaiah fifty three four through six. So this is you know. Uh, Old Testament prophet writing about the work that will be accomplished in the future where he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Is that sort of like a passage I think that teaches a substitutionary penal atonement? Um, and so because, okay, so we, the reason I brought that up is I'm, I'm sort of trying to delineate why there are some differences here on um, the extent of the atonement. Um, so because we've established that ground, um, we basically, let's, let's say we have three options. So Christ died to take away all sins of all people. Um, that, that's sort of option one, that Christ died to take away all sins of, of all people. So if Christ paid the debt, but each sinner has to accept it, that's sort of like what we have to understand about this one. Um, but if they do not, so if, if a sinner, um, if a person, okay, let me back up. Christ has died for all the sins of all people of all time. If a person does not accept the offer that has been made freely in the gospel, 
then they have to suffer the penalty for unbelief. Because if if we're going to be consistent and say that everybody who is not a part of, you know, who's not united to Christ is not going to spend eternity with him, then something has been done that separates him from what Christ has accomplished. Um, but hasn't, wouldn't, this is sort of like a logical problem here. So it, the, the problem is that unbelief is a sin that Jesus has already died for on the cross. Would, would we want to say that? Like if Jesus has died upon the cross, substitutionary, penal atonement, and if all sins of all people are there, basically the problem with this is like it, if we, or if we're going to say that he died for all sins of all people, are we punishing a sinner eternally for a sin that Christ has already died for them for? Does that make sense? Well, I mean, if, if any, like Christ died for all sins. So in a sense, so he yes, died on the, he died on the cross for the, all sins. Mm-hmm. And, but wouldn't say that would so would we not say that God's wrath was satisfied on the cross? God's wrath may have been satisfied, but my individual sins are forgiven of me. So then why did God punish Jesus for mm -hmm. a sin that would then be punished later is what I'm saying. I need to believe in order to lay hold of the promises of God in Christ. Right? So I need to believe, you know, the way that I lay hold of the... Uh, the grace, the 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 substitution for of Christ for me is through my faith. It's not. It's not that, you know, all my sins are checked off the box; they're all covered, and then I don't sin anymore. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like Jesus's blood as the as the eternal Son of God, incarnate from the womb of the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man, is a perfect sacrifice. To, who pays for the sins of the entire world because he is the that perfect spotless lamb um, who who was crushed you know, for our iniquity, pierced he, for our transgression. Right, right. So I so would it, say that the the problem is that I stand condemned because of my sin, and I accept by faith the. Um, the uh, the payment for my sins, you know, using the the legal debt language right. for that part of it, like um, Jesus has the you know Jesus has the cash in hand, you know, and he's gonna give it to the he's gonna give it to the to the to the bank for me, um, or I have to give it to the bank, you know, and he's got the cash and he's offering it to me. I have to take the cash to the bank, you know what I mean? Like, so, but isn't that you having some part in your salvation? Like you're you're like. That, no, this is one not. of the problems that I've had, like in understanding. And again, I'm I'm not trying to say I I even have all the answers. Um, that that's just like so when we're talking about mm-hmm. limited versus uh, an unlimited atonement, that's like one of the the questions I've had is in that language of you know so Christ has accomplished a work, he did something in the past that we need to lay hold of, but is our laying hold of it a work that we are accomplishing? No, or, it's by it's by grace through faith. Even this is a totally different conversation because even if you say yes, particular redemption, yes, he only died for the elect. The elect still at some point lay hold of it by faith. So right. and so we're not saying that that's true. that laying hold of it by faith is is a work. That that's a completely different conversation. You know, I think that there probably are some people who who would 
you know, frame it that way, you know, of like, oh, well, there's a work, but we're not saying we're not that, that that's a different conversation because okay, that's helpful. Because what we're saying is that um, Christ's death is sufficient for all. Because would it, so, would you say it's sufficient for all, but only efficient for the elect, or is that not language you would use? Because um, I've heard it said that way before. Yeah, I I think that it's not the first way of phrasing it that comes to mind in that language. But but I on the surface, I don't have a problem with saying that because Christ's death is sufficient for all. Because he he God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Right. That's the key. It's not whether or not Christ loved you know god loved the world or god loved most of the world or some of the world or or that christ's death was you know was powerful but only so powerful or his blood is valuable but only so valuable or whatever um it's that not everyone has you know faith in the grace of god through christ um applied by the spirit to save us to save them and um so, so it is not efficient for all, because I think, as horrible Obviously as it is to, go to hell. you know, as horrible as it is to say, I, I think it's clear that there are people who reject Christ and right. thus are not united to Him, you know, again by grace through faith, um, and partakers of the divine nature for for eternity with God. They 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 suffer the the tragic consequences of their sin, which is separation from God. Um, but the problem isn't that there wasn't enough juice for them. <laughs> The problem is they didn't they didn't um, they didn't submit to um, the the work that Christ had done has done for them. Um, and so this that's is already kind I, of tapping into like I'm already having questions in my mind tapping into a couple of the other points that are coming mm-hmm. up here because yeah when I think about it because like, yeah, so like they do they they affect there's there's lots of overlap the there the is lip, and the the LIP is, is is like I joked to you yesterday I texted you like the LIP is is they're they're very they're very much interconnected i mean they all are but especially these three and they're very much where i just find um really big textual issues with them um in addition to the tradition the great tradition of of the church for for most of its history so so i don't want to get too ahead of ourselves um right you know so so maybe we can we can continue yeah we'll continue here a little bit Yeah, and I think, so you sort of alluded to this. Uh, we have to, when we come across the word all in scripture or the world, we, we, regardless of where we fall on the spectrum, we need to sort of like figure out what that means. Um, and one way that, again, traditionally the Reformed, so like when we come to a passage like um, 2 Peter 3, I think it's 9, um, where it says that God desires all um, should reach repentance, Um you sort of have to ask the question is like, so is God desiring something that does not come to pass? Like, can God desire something that does not actually happen? Because we know that not everybody reaches repentance. Not everybody gets um, to heaven, gets to glory. So like in that passage, when it says all, is it referring to, you know, because he's writing to a church, because he's writing to a certain group of people. And he says, you know, right before, like, you know, do not count, like, you know, beloved, do not count slowness, um, like God's slowness to fulfill his promise as, you know, human slowness, like for a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years um, for the Lord. But God is patient with you, desiring that none should perish, but that all should, um, you know, I'm, I'm quoting it from my memory. Maybe I should have pulled it up, but 
um, when we think about all, one way that the Reformed tradition has helped, or I guess has tried to understand it, is that um, all is not all with, with, without exception, but all without distinction. Meaning it's not all everybody of all time forever, um, but it's all types of people. And especially in a Jewish context, and that's one of the things that the New Testament is really trying to address a lot of the time is how Jews and Gentiles relate to one another now under the New Covenant. Um, and so when, you know, when, when a Jewish writer is writing to a Jewish audience, you know, it might be that, you know, he hasn't died just for our sins, but he's died for the sins of the world. Um, you know, he's not desiring that any should perish, but that all types of people, um, you know, that the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of, of God's elect in history should come into him. You know, like it's one way to think of like the second, he's, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? And, you know, we thought he was coming soon. And um, you know, it's almost like a hypothetical question that you could almost hear this church asking Peter, like, you said he's coming soon. Where is he? And so Peter's like, well, don't count this slowness as you as humans think about slowness. Uh, he's, you know, a day is like a thousand years to him. And so the last 2000 years and, you know, for us that have passed, that's like two days to the Lord. And so he, his, his delay is evidence of his patience. And he's desiring that all of his people should be gathered to him. Like, so that's, again, that's kind of how like the reformed tradition, I think, understands a passage like that. Um, I don't know if, I'm sure you have some, some disagreement there. And again, that's a textual difference that I know that you and I will have. Right. And I think um, that, it, that it, it is important. So of course, what you just said makes sense. Um, and it has to be done in order to make sense of the, the doctrine of limited atonement when you come to scripture. My problem is I fear that we are, we are interpreting what all means through the lens of limited atonement, not interpreting limited atonement through the lens of what the Bible says. Um, and the reason I say that is it doesn't say all kinds of people. There are, uh, there are other places where the Bible talks about different kinds of people, where it talks about Jews and Greeks, where it talks about there not being distinction. Um, it, I, I reference Romans 10.9. Um, it goes on to say, you know, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that you that uh, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you don't have to be Jew or Greek to call on the name of the Lord. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Paul's getting at there. Um, he's talking about these distinctions there do we see the distinction between jew and gentile at play when when we're told that um god desires all all would be saved i don't i don't know that we do in first john 2 we see starting in in verse 1 my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world so who is the ours? Is it Jews? I don't see that in the text either. And I don't understand if there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, why would John be writing only to the Jewish believers? Um, maybe he's writing to a particular, you know, 
household that are Jews. It's not that's not what we're not told that in 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 his epistle. So so that would be you know we can, that can't be maintained. It, it's it's just speculation. Um, I can't say that's not what happened because we're not told it. But just going off of what we have, um, it's it makes more sense to me that the hours you know, not for our sin, not, not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world is ours, meaning those who are believers, because we're, we're after Christ at this point, you know, we're, we're in the age of the church at this point. Um, Hmm. earlier you mentioned John six, where he taught, you know, in in the, in the, um, in the T part, in the total inability part where we talked about how, um, he says, I can't remember the exact quote. Sorry. I should have pulled it up. The father, no one will come unless, unless, uh, no, well, no one will come to come to Jesus unless the Father draws draws him or or, or something yeah, he like said, that. He said, John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Right. Okay. So 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 uh, Jesus's words. So John. So this is important. <laughs> we're talking about the Book of John. We're talking about the. We're talking about people being drawn to Christ. Right. Right. Um, in John twelve. Uh, 32, starting in 31. Uh, where should I start? Um, well, I'll just read 30, 32. Um, and I, Jesus talking, if I am lifted up from the earth, I, so and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But does, does he say do that? A, yes, he does. And because we are under sin, because we are fallen beings with wills bound by sin, we willingly choose to reject the free gift of grace that yeah, God but I don't, has. But, and I, I, I totally agree with that. Like I, I agree that the gospel call goes out to all. The gospel doesn't just go out to the elect. It goes out to the whole world. And I think that those who freely react positively to that gospel call prove themselves to be the elect, Like if that makes sense. Like yes, but we're not, the end talking of time, about, we're not talking about election. We're talking about... No, but I know. I know, okay. but what I'm saying is like, but but what the the passage that you brought up, I don't know if that's even teaching like anything about the atonement. Like, I think that's just a general, like what he's doing. So what is it? What to, does it mean for God to love the world? Which which is another text in John and Johannine, you know, uh, John John Ein theology. Right. He talks about um, the world a lot. When he talks about the world, he's not talking about. If you know, and I, I could be wrong. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a Johannine scholar. Um, my understanding in my reading and what I've heard and, and read on this this kind of topic, um, the world in John is is typically not referring to the nations, the Gentiles, as opposed to the Jews. The world tends to be um, an expression, especially in First John, where we have that not for our sins only, but for um, but also for those of the whole world, um, right. the world in 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 John in general in his writing, but also especially in First John, tends to be how he he refers to the 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 fallen natural state of affairs. The, the, right. The, I mean, he know. says, "Do not love the world or the things of this world." You know, he's talking just a little bit later in First John. Right. Right. That's a good example. So to be so that's why I would say, okay. You know, not propitiation for our sins only, those of the world. He's talking not only for Jews, also for all the other nations. But that just that just textually, I don't think, can be sustained. 
And then we have, so then, we, you know, okay, fine. That's only one verse out of whatever. But, but, but I mean, even there, the world isn't like a universal. Like he's not talking about the entire world. Like do not love the entire world and the things of this world. Like he's talking about the world abstractly almost. Like in a way that isn't very specific. Okay. But would you, it, but, but the world is not referring to the Gentile nations who are not Jews. It's referring to something different than that. It's referring to, you know, the things of the world. He's not saying don't love Gentile things, right? Right. He's saying don't love things of the world as opposed to things of God. So so don't, you know, don't, uh, I don't know if, I, I don't have it in front of me, but don't. it's not a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. It's a distinction between those who are saved or that which is God's and that which is not, okay. is what I would say. And, and how can Christ's death be a propitiation for the world as well as our sins um, if he actually only died for, quote unquote, our sins is is where I and I think that that first John verse is is a very it's probably one of I, I would think the clearest places to go to sort of point out my my scriptural objections to the doctrine of, of particular redemption um but it's certainly not the only the only passage you know i i see i see this this thrust of um Je- you know jesus took on the sins of the world meaning all the sins of all the world um, right on you know on uh the cross and um that the reason that doesn't result in every individual person um, being saved is because not every individual person comes to him in faith and partakes of his redemption. Of so I have a, I have a question on that on that front. Then, yeah, is it okay? okay. So uh, again, this is this just came to mind, and, and now I'm curious what you think or how you might respond. So, if God the Father loves everyone just the same. You know, God so loved the world. If Christ died for everyone who has ever lived, so if, if his atonement is universal, or um, sorry, unlimited, not universal, unlimited, and if the Holy Spirit draws everyone equally, then when someone is saved, what has made the difference or who has made the difference? God has made the difference. That goes back to election. I'm not saying, but, but like, some, who, but like, I'm, what I'm mm-hmm. saying is like, what distinguishes like between me and my unregenerate friend down the road? If we have, if we're all in the same category, mm-hmm. what is the difference that gets me over that hump into belief? What what lays claim to the object of faith if it I, is in fact? Yeah, I'm. <laughs> I can't believe I, I'm sounding like a I'm sounding like a Calvinist. Election is the is the is the difference if let's let's pretend for example i'm elect and my neighbor's not um prior to either of us coming to faith or rejecting christ we're in the same boat we're totally unable to save ourselves um there's nothing we can do because no one is righteous not even one no one seeks after god um we're dead in our trespasses and sins we're we're doomed We're, we're we're toasted and jesus comes he dies on the cross he for he he pays for he satisfies the wrath of God, he pays the debt, he heals the sickness, um, and he offers to everybody um, himself on the cross, 
where he offers himself to the Father on behalf of everybody on the cross. Um, at some point, you know, we hear we me and my neighbor both hear the gospel message. Um, you know, we. So wouldn't that be you responding? Like you're doing something in response to hearing the same thing. Yes, of and course. And so wouldn't We're that be called... something you're boasting in? Like you can boast no, in my. That's... That's such a that's such a that's such a false equivalence that I feel like comes up a lot because it's no I, what I'm saying is no different than what you would say when somebody gets saved. It's you know quote unquote gets saved, not the best way of phrasing it, but but we know what we mean when you know we right. mean comes to faith. Um, that that that's not at all you know somehow turning faith into a work. That's that's describing the response to the work of the Spirit that we have is that I uh, respond in faith and somebody else does not, or I don't respond in faith and somebody else does. And that is all solely, you know, it's sola fide, sola gratia. There is no work. It is right. only okay. by the grace of Christ, only by his merits, um, laid hold of by me only through my faith, which is open-handed reception of what he did. Um, you know, there's an analogy that I've heard of like, you know, Jesus gives us a present, we have to open it. Um, and I understand what that analogy is sort of getting at. But honestly, where I think the analogy, one of the places I think that analogy breaks down is um, we don't even get to, we, we don't even ha- get to open the present on our own even being able to open the present is a grace, if that makes sense. If, if opening the present is believing, mm. it's it, even opening a present sounds, even as simple as that is, it almost sounds, in the analogy, sounds too much like it's something I'm doing under my own power. And the so we're saying the same thing when we're talking about, when we're talking about what it means for somebody to hear the gospel, believe, repent, um, and and you know, through that come into the faith. We're not, we're not disagreeing on that at all. Um, what I'm saying is that Christ died for everybody. What I'm saying is that Christ's blood was good enough for every human because he is the perfect God man, because he's the spotless lamb. And because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Right. Not exactly. so that I, I everybody. Agree. So exactly. And I know, and I know we agree and, uh, on and it's just interesting that, that we can like agree on the same thing, but like our, like our like our extents are different, which I think, I mean, maybe maybe we're just belaboring the point, and at this point everyone's tuned out. <laughs> what we're <laughs> maybe, saying, maybe. but like our, our again, I, I maybe maybe we should just like again reiterate, pound home the idea that we are working through these not because we completely understand every aspect that is right. contained within them, but because we want to. Um, well, one, better understand what Christ has done for us, because I think we, as believers who have um, an intellect and a mind, like, we ought to think about these things. Like, we, we should not just ignore them because they're hard and difficult or um, make us uncomfortable, because that's just like a reality of, of reading scripture. There are going to be things that are hard and difficult. Um, so I don't know. I think, again, maybe this is another point that we're just, we'll, we'll have to um, move on here in a second, but um at the end of the day is it safe to say <laughs> that those who are in so at the end of time that those who are in glory 
with Christ that those people are the elect and that Christ's atoning death was completely efficient for them, even though, like, so from your perspective, you would say that the atonement, its extent is sufficient for all people, but a lot of people, we'll just say even the majority of people maybe, have rejected it. Oh, yeah. I mean, so like at the end of the day, like we... see like this i I don't know that we can say that this is a doctrine that you can hinge you know we can't put a lot of stock here um and it's i'm not i'm not trying to like diminish the importance of talking about the atonement um what like what i'm trying to say is that the extent of the atonement is not something that we should be very dogmatic about is that fair to say yeah i mean i don't i don't think that we should be dogmatic about it in 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 this sense do we do we you know turn the l of tulip to to a dogma or you know or the rejection of the l of tulip into a dogma no um i do think that from my perspective the bible's clear that jesus dies for everyone so i kind of feel like i just have to reject it um and if we there are there are of course (laughs) things that are related to the what we want to say about the L of Tulip that I would want to turn into a dogma when we start talking about who Christ was, what he did, you know, that, you know, when right. we start talking about the atonement more broadly. Um, but I definitely don't want to reject, you know, e- eject anyone who believes in limited atonement from the, from the faith. I think that would be right ridiculous <laughs> um particularly like if, we're, if we're all brothers we're all the, the atonement has been efficient for us like there's not going to be a disagreement there yeah and i mean that's not even why i would i wouldn't you know die on this hill as much as it's just i can i just don't think that this question is this of central uh, is the central question of the atonement you know yeah um, that's fair and, and, and I, I do want to say that I think it's a very logical conclusion based on all the other letters and based on everything else that um, we, you know, Reformed uh, Theology of Salvation puts forward. Um, I, I, like I said earlier, I fear that we can tend to interpret Scripture through, I mean, everybody tends to interpret Scripture through their biases. That's part of being human and what we have to do is learn how to um, do our best to look past those biases and, and, you know, listen to voices outside of ourselves. Um, but, but the bias of the reformed view, I think at times colors how those texts are read that don't point towards a limited atonement to such an extent Mm. that, that we're able to fit them into our preconceived system. Okay. So, you know, on the surface, it's much more logical for you to believe in T, U, L, and as we as we will see, I and P, than it is for me to believe in T, you know, U pretty much the same as you, but then reject L, and as we'll see, I and P. Um, I, I think that sometimes what feels logical and systematic to us um, fits together better than the plain teaching of Scripture seems to on the surface at times. Because hmm. um, I think it, it does feel less logical to hold you know unconditional election of some people and unlimited atonement 
I just think that's what scripture teaches. <laughs> um, and, well, so I'm and I, curious, yeah. just maybe as a way like to wrap up this point here, um, I'm curious what you think of Mark 10, 45. And this is one of those, like, it's often been a meme where it says, I came um, not to be served, but to serve, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of, fun, uh, you know, it's, you got served. Like, it's, okay, <laughs> anyway, um, but Mark 10, 45, it, from there, it goes on to say that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Jesus mm-hmm. says, I came to give yeah. my life as a ransom for many. Mm-hmm. And so what when we think about the word ransom, what is a ransom? You know, if we think about, you know, poor... Um, innocent children that are kidnapped from a rich wealthy man and these kidnappers are um, demanding money in exchange for the safe return of their kids Mm. Um, so that's sort of like our earthly way of when we think about ransom Um, so Christ's sacrifice I think maybe it's safe to say was a ransom paid to God the Father who in his justice had been holding rebellious sinners accountable for their actions um, so then what are the implications if Christ pays their ransom? Cause he's, he comes to give his life as a ransom for many. So what are the implications if he pays their ransom and they do not go free? So if, again, if we're talking about if these people have taken kids from a rich man, the ransom is paid, but then those kids don't go free. Then so did did Christ fail to pay the required ransom? Did the father change his demands and say something that more is required? Um, if Christ paid the ransom for every human who ever lived, why does like why doesn't God's justice release every sinner? I guess that's just some of my thought on again as we wrap up this. Right. Like, maybe I guess like what is your understanding of I came to give my life as a ransom for many. It, not even all. I mean, he could have I, said, I gave my, my life as a ransom for all people. Right. I mean, I, I don't think that all people are ransomed if we want to. So this is a good example. This is another way that the Bible talks about the atonement besides the forensic, the, the substitutionary right. penal um, aspect of it is is as a ransom. You know, who's he paying a ransom to? You know, ransom to Satan, ransom to the father, you know, ransom to the father doesn't really make a lot of sense, you know, wh- whatever. Um, if we're going to stick with your analogy, um, I, it's not that the correct sum is paid and then the children aren't released. It's that the correct, the, the money is there, the correct sum is paid and the children choose to stay with their kidnapper. It's it, the, the, the analogy of, of okay. with the kids breaks down, you know, fairly quickly. Um, because it's just an analogy an, an analogy, um, like, like cosmic Stockholm syndrome or something here. Um, well, I mean, yeah, like what, 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 I think that's a very apt way to describe, you know, the human condition. <laughs> understand. Um, let's, let's write a new book about that. Cosmic <laughs> Stockholm syndrome. Um, and, and so, you know, another way to look at it is it's not a ransom if there's not the exchange of money for the, for the, for the captive. You know what I mean? So if the person is never set free because they never believe, then, Jesus's blood hasn't ransomed them. I, I don't know. Again, that's just taking mm. that way of speaking and and looking at it like like you said. What is a ransom? Well, let's think about it. I, it you know, it doesn't. I, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I don't. I don't. No, think, I know that, that's helpful. I like you that know. I don't. I don't think you call it a ransom. Like if I have a million dollars to ransom my loved one from my a kidnapper, it, you know, is that sack of money 
a rant called a ransom because that's what it's intended to be used for? Is it called a ransom because it's handed to them? Is it called a ransom when the transact? I don't know. You know, that's hmm. that's like almost worthless semantics at that point. And and I do think <laughs> that's it's like if we if we pretend that substitutionary penal atonement is the only way Scripture talks about the atonement, um, then we run into some big problems because we're just narrowing our focus if we pretend that being a ransom is the only way that scripture talks about the atonement then we run into big problems because we're narrowing our focus too much um so i do think that um you know that's sort of where i would would leave it in just in okay. terms of like i think that jesus means what he said <laughs> that his his life is a ransom for many um okay. and, yeah. and i and i think that you know i'm not i'm not trying to pretend that Oh, I'm I'm the one just reading the Bible. You're the one with all these, you know, fancy <laughs> interpret. Like that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but I do I'm think that there, there's a there, <laughs> there is a uh, certain there's a certain sense where I I do feel like you know I I'm not saying that there are no places where the word all refers to all kinds, um, but I also think the word all means all, and when it says all people, all people, the whole world, the whole world over and over again, um, I, I start to doubt that we're able to exclusively read those phrases in a way that is all distinction. So it just feels like, well, says he wants all to be saved, says he's going to draw all men to himself, says he loves the whole world, propitiation for the world's sins, ransom for many. I think everybody, he died for everybody and not everybody's going to be saved, you know? Um, hmm. that, that's a very, that's a very reductive way to kind of sum up what I've been trying to express so far <laughs> on this question and hopefully didn't do too bad a job with, but you know, no, I think we'll, that's see. Helpful. And we'll figure it out in post, I guess. <laughs> well, let's, let's go to the next point because we still got two more and we'll try to, I think they'll go a little bit quicker because mm-hmm. even though we might have disagreements, I don't think there is you know, as big as these other ones have been. So yeah. Um, the next letter, we had T-U-L, we're going into I, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace, um, sometimes called the effectual call. Um, so we've already said that Christ purchased our redemption as believers. He, he paid that ransom, you know, however we want to say it. Um, but we partake or we lay hold of it only when the Spirit effectively applies it to us by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ. Um, so, you know, God, the father elected, God, the son redeemed, God, the Holy Spirit calls us, um, with a grace, uh, in our effectual call. So again, I'm going to go back to John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So we've already said that, you know, no one can come because we're all sinful, but how do we come? That's sort of like the question here. So when, we, when we've talked about our sinfulness, what Christ has accomplished, then how do we get from sinfulness to glory? And this is sort of like, I guess, from the Reformed perspective, one of the ways in which um, we we get there. So when, um, uh, let's see. Uh, so yeah, in, in quote, again, in quoting John six forty four, no no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God must do something uh, to make a difference in the mind of of anyone who comes to Jesus. Now, uh, before we get any further, I know this almost sounds like God imposing upon our wills in which, in a way in which we're not acting freely. Um, but that is not what irresistible grace teaches, though that's how many people have understood it. Um, when a person repents of sin and believes in Christ, it is evidence that God has worked in the sinner so that he has stopped resisting God. Because in our, in our sinful state, um, we are in rebellion, we are in resistance against God. 
And so we do not, and it's, it's sort of like you have to think about it in the sense that we, we cannot save ourselves. Um, and so what is it that changes our heart of stone into a heart of flesh? What is it that um, transforms us? Um, and the Reformed view would say that um, we are, you know, given a, a new heart. Um, and so I thought I'd look into this John six forty four passage where it says that no one can come unless the Father draws him. The word that is translated draws is actually a pretty forceful Greek word. It only appears a few times, but it, usually the things that are be, being drawn are not um, necessarily cheerfully compliant with the drawing. Um, so John 18.10 says, Peter drew his sword. Um, John 21.6, the disciples were not able to draw their nets full of fish. Um, Acts 16.19, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. There's another one in Acts where Paul is dragged into prison. Um, again, irresistible grace does not mean that God saves us against our wills. On the contrary, um, God makes us willing to comply with his grace. So Philippians 2.13 says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Psalm 110.13 says your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. So we're talking about God who is working in us, but also your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. As a result of the Spirit's work, the elect, those who are chosen, uh, freely repent of sin and believe in Christ. So like the prodigal, we get sick of living in the pigsty and we humbly go uh, to the Father. Do you have anything you want to say at this point? No, no. I'm all right. So God, God, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so God uses means to open our eyes and hearts to who he is. Um, so again, he's not working. It's not as though he's just like working against our will and we have no say in the matter. Um, so for example, in the conquest of Canaan, and this is sort of ironic. Have you even seen the articles about these like killer hornets? I think you mean have you murder seen hornets? <laughs> yeah, the murder. That's right. The murder hornets. Have you even seen that? Uh, unfortunately. So like, yeah. So those articles came out after I had sort of come up with the notes here. So I think it's kind of ironic. But um, in the conquest of Canaan, so back in, in the Old Covenant when the, the people of Israel come out of Egypt and they're about to take the promised land, one of the things that God did was send hornets to the, drive out the people of the land, which maybe God's send, sending some murder hornets into America to drive us out of the land. Who knows? Um, maybe I overstepped some bounds right there. But that was just for humor's sake. Um Anyway, he didn't just lift the Hittites from the land like some alien. Like, it wasn't like God was like, you're going to possess the land, Israel, but I'm just going to, like, rapture them up so that you can have the land. Um, but God used a means. And we all know the rapture is ridiculous. Yep. We'll get there eventually in a future episode. I cannot wait. Um, but the, in the conquest of Canaan, in, in this example, God used hornets, of all things, a very physical mean um, to accomplish his purpose. Um, you know, other ways... When we think about God's kindness, his loving kindness, his forbearance, his patience, uh, God is all over the Old Testament and the New. God is what? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Um, these are just some of the ways in which, like, when we begin to grasp these realities, like, our hearts become um, become softened. Um, but still, people reject this loving and this gracious God, right? This is kind of a reality. When we look in the world, there are people who reject the, the free offer of the gospel. They reject his grace, his mercy, what he accomplished on the cross. Um, you know, John 640, Jesus tells the people, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The people of Jesus' day saw his miracles, they heard his teachings, and they still chose to reject him. 
So we're talking like if we're if we're going to talk about like Jesus's miracles, his works, his teachings, seeing Jesus in the flesh, and they still choose to not come to him to have life. Um, how much harder is it going to be for us who don't see his miracles uh, as tangibly, who don't hear his audible voice um, come to him? So again, God, I don't want to say, I can't say this enough. God does not save us against our wills. Um, but I want to sort of like hypothetically ask the question, would it really bother you if you found out that he did? So like if in some way that he did like save us against our wills, like would you actually be upset about that? That's a, a rhetorical question. I'm curious what you thought. I mean, I'd be, ups- I'd be upset because it just seems like it's inconsistent with what we're taught. You know, like we we have a responsibility to exercise our wills, to obey him, right. to yeah. to follow him. So I, I, I don't, as, I mean, I, you know, if I got... That's the, why I said it's hypothetical. I don't yeah, think that... Exactly. Like, like I think I'm it's... I'm curious what you thought. You know, if I got to glory and he's like, ha you know, <laughs> guess what? It was against your will. You were an experiment. I'd be like, well... Thank you. That's not fun. <laughs> you know, I like, I, 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 you know, but I do, it's just kind of, it, it's, it's a very far out there hypothetical just because well, people, right. that's just not how it works, you know? Um, yeah. And that's, again, I, I only brought that up because right. as I was writing this out, I was like, well, what, like, well, I wonder what people would think, like, if they actually, I mean, again, they're not going to find out that that's the case. Um, because before God, we'll just say that before God called any of us, we did not want him to be Lord of our lives. We wanted to continue in sin and rebellion. Um, we wanted to rule ourselves, determine what is good and evil. We love sin, hate God. Um, and so it, we don't just wake up one morning and decide to reject our sin and the way that we've been living and submit to the God that we hated and now choose to submit to his rule and authority, right? Like it's just sort of seems inconsistent or inconceivable even to say that that would be the reality that, that people living in, in utter sin and rebellion would just suddenly wake up under their own power under their own um might and just decide you know what i'm gonna accept the gospel now um and so the change that takes place is a change um within us it's a it's a drawing or a a calling and this is a again a sort of a mysterious supernatural work of the spirit in the heart of a sinner he convinces us of our sin and our misery he enlightens our mind with the knowledge of christ he renews our wills he persuades and enables us to embrace um Jesus freely as he's offered in the gospel. Um, you know, just like when Jesus died for us, there was nothing that we could do to help him or add to his work. When the spirit calls us, we do not help him or add to, to his work. Um, and something that, that I was sort of thinking about in, in, in preparing for this is the reality that like there is a spiritual world that is very evident, but that we do not really pay attention to. Um, you know, Ephesians 6.12, Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. So these are the things that we wrestle against, not flesh and blood, but uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, You know, at the Last Supper in John 13, it says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. So if Satan can blind us, um, if he can put it into the heart of Judas um, to betray Jesus, cannot the Holy Spirit um, give us sight? Can he, um, you know, can he not put into a man's heart the desire to receive Jesus? Um, you know, and so if we're going to talk about this language, you know, elsewhere we read that we are made alive by the Spirit. 
We are new creations. The Holy Spirit's work is described as giving birth, raising the dead, creating a new person. Um, these are things that we cannot do ourselves because we were, again, we were, if we were dead in our trespasses and sin, we do not give ourselves the spiritual life. We do not raise ourselves. Uh, the Spirit is the one that causes us to be born again. And for like the third or fourth time, this is a mystery, um, but the Spirit knows how to do it and and he does it. And if we, if we want to think about this even further with a couple other passages, um, consider Lydia in Acts 16, 14. It says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Or in Ezekiel 36, 25, and 20, uh, 25 through 27, um, it speaks of God doing all the work. He cleanses, he gives a new heart, he puts a new spirit within us, he removes the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. He is the one that causes us to walk in his statutes and obey him. So like I was like sort of paraphrasing Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. You know, he says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. Um, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and obey them. So that's, uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts there? Because <laughs> I've said a lot here. So is there grace that can be resisted? Is there such a thing as resistible grace? So that's, that's why I don't, again, that's why I don't like calling it irresistible grace because it sounds like something, when you say ir- irresistible, it sounds like something that you do not have the ability to resist. And that's why some people think that this teaches that you are saved against your will. Um, but again, what this is trying to communicate, what it's trying to teach um, in this effectual call is, that, you know, there, there are, are generally two different calls that you know theologically we talk about we talk about a general call and an effectual call the general call sort sort of goes out to to everybody um you know in nature and things that can be perceived whereas this effectual call is one of um drawing a sinner to christ it's one that um it isn't against again it's not being saved against your will but it's um you know, maybe putting circumstances into your life. The bees come. They come and swarm the land. Um, or maybe, it, so there's there's bees and there's honey. Honey is the sweet side. Maybe it's um, coming into, um, coming to grips with God's grace, his His love, the the things that he has done for you. Um, it's it's a way in which, uh, you know, our, our eyes are opened and we then are able to respond. Like, so when we're talking about it, like maybe the best way to understand it is thinking about um, this heart of f- stone that has been turned into a a heart of flesh and it's it's not that the spirit takes out your stone puts in the flesh and suddenly you're saved Um, but as eyes are opened as hearts are softened um, we become more attentive to the things of god we become more responsive Um, we respond to the free offer of the gospel Um, so i don't know it's when we're talking about irresistible grace i don't like that label i think whoever came up with tulip was like i just want a really helpful acronym like they didn't want a bunch of like letters that didn't spell a word um and you know i think that might have been a little bit of a detriment to this um Mm. but it's not i I don't like irresistible grace for that reason because it's not something that we are i i I don't know like do do you know what i'm saying though yeah and i think a lot of my I think this is a little eye-opening. A lot of my, the stuff I was like ready to talk about with Irresistible Grace, I feel like is actually more to do with uh, perseverance or preservation of the saints. The, the, oh, interesting. The P. Because I think that I had a, a lot a lot more like, 
because I think, you know, a combination of just the way that the label Irresistible Grace sounds, the way that it's been taught to me in the past, the way I've interpreted certain things that I've heard or read about it. I I think I had a much more broad understanding of, of the way that that phrase is meant to be used and taken as opposed to more specifically describing the process of the call of an individual who goes from unbelief to belief because you know up to this point i I don't really have any objections to what you're saying um that's good (laughs) in in the sense that i i think that in some mysterious way that's just kind of how we're told that it works you know like our our we, Being we are, cut to the heart, like we don't cut right, ourselves, but like right. in hearing the gospel preached, those people in Acts were cut to the heart, and they really like those are the same people that like weeks before had been crying, "Crucify him, crucify him." They wanted him right. put to death, and some of those same people are now suddenly cut to the heart and realizing, yeah, like the gravity and reality. But that's not something that they themselves did. They didn't cut themselves. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. So my my problem would be like, are or, or I shouldn't say that. I should I should. I shouldn't go, you know, assume a problem. Would, you know, would would you or would somebody want to say that those people were cut to the heart and at that moment they they would not be able to do anything but believe? Like they I don't you know, think so. Peter's Peter's sermon cuts them to the heart. You know, they still need to they still need to to respond to that cutting by being like oh i need a savior jesus of nazareth is that savior right you know like right um and then that so that leads into you know then they ask him you know what are we gonna what do we have to do to be saved like like they they those people were told did respond that way and i think that where i would where i would object is if someone's like oh yeah no i mean if they were since they were cut to the heart that means that they were they were elect and they had no choice at that point. You know, that was the spirit. So had already that, done I think that. that's a bad caricature that often gets represented that often yeah, gets and, thrown around. I don't think I, that's actually what it is mm-hmm. trying to be communicated. Yeah. So I think that that, that it, it's a little, it might be a little unfair of me to lump the, you know, to lump all that together. Well, it's definitely a little unfair of me to lump every caricature anyone ever says about anything together. But like, you know, like I think that, um, as we'll see, and maybe, maybe if you're if you're ready to to go on to it, maybe this is a good yeah, transition let's go on the P. to the P. Yeah. I, I think that the there these two in my mind are, are are very closely related. So that might also be part of it. Is where I I, I thought there was going to be a lot more of like, you know, like I said, I think a lot of the things I was expecting that I would feel the need to talk about are gonna are more. Pro, more more relevant in this next final section so okay um yeah yeah so I that think, was a nice yeah. short little uh letter there i guess <laughs> a letter i um and we'll go to that to p so this is this has been historically known as perseverance of the saints um or preservation of the saints uh it, it could be interchangeable there they're both the letter p so it doesn't change that letter um, few yeah i mean that's really important is that the acronym works <laughs> <laughs> finally a letter that doesn't get changed right um so, okay, let's see. Um, I just also want to say, like, this is one of those uh, episodes where I've read a lot more than I like to. I often like to just, like, speak more 
organically, but like I'm trying to be very precise so as to one, not misrepresent anything or to say something incorrectly. So I have, I should have noted maybe at the beginning, I have 10 pages of notes. Normally I have like a page. (laughs) Um, So like I apologize for some like stumbling around while I sort of like gather my thoughts. But like, again, I want to be concise, precise and fair. Um, Okay. So let's see. And okay, so also this sort of touches on an episode we've already done. So if, if you want an in-depth 45-minute conversation about this letter, um, maybe check out some of our, uh, our conversation where we talked about um, apostasy and falling away. That was like maybe four or five episodes ago. Um, but from the Reformed perspective, um, and I know, I know that you have a, a counter to this because I read through your notes. So like maybe right away we'll just say something, but... Uh, if you earned your salvation, then you can lose it yourself. If, however, your s- salvation depends on the finished work of Christ, then your salvation is eternally secure. Did you want to, like, right off the bat, bring up a counter to that? Yeah, I mean, I would say I agree with that statement. Um, I don't, well, in the sense, I agree with the first part. Um, if you earned your salvation, if I earned my salvation, then I have no external hope no external reason to have security in that salvation okay Um, so then on the flip side yeah because you you did it if you did it you have no security but if christ yeah because if you did it salvation right then your salvation is eternally secure in him so like what this is what this doctrine is teaching is that the saints those who are elect those who have been um you know the body of Christ, whose you know Christ's blood covers, they will persevere to the end. They will not lose their salvation. Is that more or less kind of like in line with what you've heard? Yeah, and I think um, the sort of vulgar, you know, reductive way of expressing it is once saved, always saved. Um, and yeah, I'll get into that too. And I think that the that that that's not. You know that's that's problematic. That that's problematic. But but what I, I so what I would ask is is would you you know wh- if we're ignoring the sort of you know issues of like oh just I was baptized as a baby oh I prayed the sinner's prayer you know if if we if we're ignoring those misinterpretations of what it means to quote unquote be saved would mm-hmm. you say would you say um. Once a genuine believer in Christ, always a genuine believer in Christ. I, I would say that, yeah. Right. I, and I, so, I don't so think this a genuine where, believer can walk away. Yeah. And so this is where it's really helpful. I'm not saying you have to go listen to the episode on falling away to under, to, but it's just, we, we spent the whole episode talking about exactly this question. This is where, right. this is why I would have to reject the P is I think that scripture shows that we can in fact walk away from our faith. Um, hence, uh, you know, if we're talking about everyone who is ever saved, me and 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 like I said, caveat, I'm meaning like authentically actually believing, not right, not just going through the motions because that's what their family does or whatever. Um, but I mean like authentic, actual believing in Christ, you can leave it. So right. So I do. So so yes, like those who are elect will persevere to the end. Yes, those who are saved in in the end need to persevere to get there you, you know like i i do believe but you're that. saying that there are some who can be of the faith who will not persevere 
Right. So the 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 only the only objection, if we can phrase it like that, that I would have to the P of tulip is that I believe there is such a possibility of real apostasy. Um, and my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, it, although it sounds like this is this is right, is that wrapped up in the per, the idea of the perseverance or preservation of the saints is that saints cannot apostatize. Right. Be, be, you know, so I would say that there are there are people who, you know, maybe this is a little confusing language, um, but just to keep it in the language of 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 tulip, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would say that there are saints who won't persevere there. Like, you know, like hmm. there are people who look like saints, at, but aren't really and don't persevere. We would both so then you wouldn't call them saints, though. At one time, they may have been saints. I'm saying. There are people who are legitimate believers in Christ who come to to reject that salvation, and and I'm saying they are no longer saved. Hmm. I, I'm I'm again going back to our apostasy episode, right? I believe we won't I, rehash all that, right? But. Without rehashing, what I'm what I'm trying to say is maybe there there you know I'm sure that there is such a thing as as you know false faith you know or or a, you know you you think you're Pseudo saved faith. but you but you don't really understand so what you what you what you th- what you believe isn't actually you know saving faith or whatever. Sure, yeah, but I also believe that there is real faith, which is shipwrecked. genuine saints who can y- fall away. Yeah, so that that's okay. why that's my uh, you know that's where I it's just not it, it's just I'm just not able to say that I believe in perseverance of the saints as it is expressed when it's okay. u- when it's used in this way. Are the saints well, maybe... who are saved those who persevere to the end? Yes, by God's grace, everyone who perseveres to the end will be saved, and those people are the elect. Um, the The possibility exists for somebody who is a member of the church, meaning you know, capital C, a member of Christ's body, to be cut off from Christ, to use Paul's language. So, without mm-hmm. rehashing, that's sort of my right. little my little thing. Okay. Well, so here, let me let me maybe explain some of the things about preservation or perseverance of the saints that I did not necessarily bring up in that episode just to sort of help guide what this is teaching. Um, and this is a point that was made in a book that I, I found really helpful um, when I was sort of studying these things, uh, not only recently, but in the past too. Um, but it was called um, Mere Calvinism. And the author makes the point that saints in heaven may be happier than the saints on earth, but they are not more secure. And that was something that I found um, to be pretty f- profound. Um, and it's, it's, it's making the point that the security of our salvation, um, that even those in heaven already are not any more secure than we are here on earth, which is something that, if this proves to be true, um, offers great assurance to a believer, great comfort, great joy, knowing that their salvation will be seen through to the end. Um, and so, you know, we have to sort of ask, what is salvation? What is eternal life? I mean, even John 3.16 says that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. So when does eternal life begin? When does, you know, what does it mean to perish? Uh, you know, John, he says, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but should have eternal life. Um in a reformed sense, um, eternal life begins at the moment of, of being born again. Um, if you are born again, you will never die 
spiritually and this like so that's that's one of the problems that i think i have and i I know we've already gone over this when we had that episode um but if there's a true believer we're talking about you have like god has caused you to be born again to a living hope to quote peter and first peter um so that language even of you know jesus to nicodemus you must be born again i don't see how we can be reborn and then re-die spiritually um but the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is the logical and again, what reformed people would say is the biblical culmination of all that we've discussed so far. Since God chose his people before the foundation of the world, since Jesus paid um, uh, their ransom, he died in their place. And since the Holy Spirit has called them and made them holy, it stands to reason that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, to quote Philippians 1.6. It doesn't make sense that God would go to all this work in redemption, not to see it through to completion. So if we remember John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. He gives us eternal life. We will never perish and no one can snatch us from his hands. Again, I'm paraphrasing what, what, John, or what uh, Jesus says in John 10, that um, us as his sheep, we hear his voice and we follow him. And when we follow him, part of that is giving us eternal life, a promise that we will never perish and no one can snatch us from his hand. The Father, who is greater than all, has given us to him, and no one can snatch us from his hands. I mean, he says it twice in there, in that passage, twice, that no one can snatch us. So we cannot lose or walk away from what Christ has begun and is seeing to completion. And so here I bring up once saved, always saved, which I say is a caricature of this doctrine. So for some, merely repeating the sinner's prayer or walking down the aisle raising your hand, asking Jesus into your heart, this is what it means to them to get saved. You know, I'm sure we've all been to like revivals or youth camps where like this is what it means to get saved. If only they'll say this prayer and raise their hand, then we can get them into heaven. Um, It's not always the best way to talk about this. Um, I think it's one way that we misrepresent the gospel, we misrepresent salvation, and we really mislead people away from reality. Um, So what is true saving faith? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. We are saved when we receive and are united to a person, namely Jesus Christ. We are not saved until we receive and rest upon him alone. And so this is sort of a callback to what I said earlier. Um, Let me just pull it back up. That difference, I think, was it under... Um, where I talked about the object of saving faith, um, that Christ himself is the object, not a part of his work. Um, When I was talking about that, I was anticipating this coming up here. Um, So what does it mean to receive Christ? What does it mean to receive him as the object of our faith? Well, Christ as a word uh, actually simply means anointed one. You know, it's sort of come to become another name for Jesus, but it's, it's also something that he is. He is the anointed one. And being an anointed one is a sign that God had chosen a person for a certain job or task. So in the Old Testament, for example, there were three very important jobs or offices that God anointed select men to perform. One, a prophet was a person who spoke for God. Two, a priest who offered sacrifices and interceded for the people. And three, the king who conquered, defended, and ruled by God's authority. So Jesus, as we know, is our greater um, fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king. He uh, fulfills all three offices and is now, at this moment, our prophet, priest, and king. So when we receive Christ, that is what we are receiving. Um, You know, as our prophet, he reveals by his word and spirit the will of God. 
So will you take his word to be absolute truth and reject any ideas and philosophies that contradict his word? That's part of what it means to receive Christ, to take him at his word, to believe him, to confess him, um, and so forth. And so when we think about priest, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy uh, divine justice and to reconcile us to God. He continues at this moment to intercede on our behalf. So those are two things that priests did, offer sacrifice and intercede. Are you ready to abandon any idea of saving yourself by your own good works? If you take Jesus to be your priest, then you will rely on him to represent you before God and you will trust him to do all that is necessary to make you right with God. You know, and, and we read over and over in Hebrews about the old covenant, the, the priests and making sacrifices daily, but Jesus has made a sacrifice once for all and is now seated at the right hand of the father. Um, you know, for a priest to sit, that shows completion, that it is done. So if this work is done, um, are we going to rest in that? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to um, believe that his work as priest is sufficient? And then lastly, as king, he is ruler he is king. He is Lord of the cosmos and all that they contain. Um, he is the ruler and defender of his people. Will you lay down your arms of rebellion and submit to his absolute rule? So in a way, this is what it means to receive Christ. And there, there are probably other ways to think about it. But when we think about it under the banner of prophet, priest, and king, this is what we are receiving. This is what we are um, being united to. It's not just merely believing that Jesus died. That is an, an aspect of it, but our hope is found um, in all of the work of Christ. Um, and so here, as I sort of wrap up, I'm just going to quote a bunch of passages here. So um, in John 1, 11 through 13, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then here we have 1 John 3.24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So if we're going to talk about persevering to the end, the saints who will see their faith all the way through, um, who will not apostatize, who will not walk away, um, those who abide, um, we know that we abide because of the spirit that is within us. Um, let's see. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if God's power is guarding um, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed, I don't know how we could resist and walk away. Um, and then Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, his divine power. So Jesus, Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So I know that was like a lot of information to sort of throw at you and um, not really unpack a lot of it. But now, again, I'm curious. Um, I know, I, I guess I already know where you stand, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts to anything I just said. No, I think that um, it's a really, everything you just said is a really fantastic way to describe how it is that 
um, God preserves his, his people to the end, you know, at the end, meaning the end of our lives, the end times, you know, um, to, to the final, you know, the day of the Lord, when, when we have, we enter into the new heavens and new earth. Um, and I think that it, you know, it is incredibly important to realize that our salvation it's by faith alone it's nothing that we do it rests externally on the grace and the work of god himself so we can we we have nothing to be afraid of that 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 is an unshakable rock um that we're not going to you know wake up one day and be lost because you know we had the wrong thoughts or we whatever you, you know what I mean? Um, right. God is faithful. He is just to forgive us when we confess our sins. He is, uh, he loves us and he's committed to us and he unites us to himself. Um, and nothing can snatch us away from his hand. Um, all of that is a much needed, much encouraging, um, much peace bringing <laughs> uh, reminder of the fact that God is faithful to us. And that's why, we can trust that the God who saved us is going to preserve us. You know, we've been saved, we are being saved and we will be saved by Christ alone, you know? Um, so that's what I would say. And then okay. the only, the only difference I would really have is that's, you know, our side of that is, to believe in the promises of God in Christ, you know? Um, and if we stop believing in them, we don't get the benefits, you know what I mean? Um, and so if there is a person who stops believing, who used to believe and stops believing, then that person has not persevered. Um, hmm. and that person has not been preserved because God doesn't work, doesn't save us against our will, <laughs> as right. you said, you know? Um, and so that's where, well, maybe this is like the best way to wrap it up. I mean, w would you, would you agree that our union with Christ ensures that every true believer will persevere to the end? It, I guess it depends on what you mean by true believer. Cause I, because yeah. because I do I believe that you can be cut off from Christ. You know we that 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 uh, Paul uses that phrase in Galatians. You can't be cut off if you weren't already attached. You know what I mean. So I do believe that there are those who have authentic, legitimate, believing faith in Christ as, by grace through faith alone as their salvation. And one day, you know, or over time, gradually, they come to the point where they choose to reject that faith that they once had. Hmm. Um, so if by true believer, you just mean those who, you know, truly believe and, and, and maintain belief, then yes, God preserves them to the end. But if by true believer, you mean everyone who at any point has um, saving faith in Christ, I, I think that, again, it's, I just see on the pages of scripture something different. You know what I mean? I see people walking away. I see warnings against falling away written to believing people. Um, I don't see 
an option where we can just write that off as something that can't mm. really happen if unless you didn't really believe. You know what I mean? You know, I'm yeah. I'm not gonna pretend that that there are like that I could like put numbers on this. For all I know, you know, it, I, it's not even it's not even worth trying to trying to say that. Like like that's what I would say. That's where where our okay. difference would lie. Um, right. That's where it, that's where it, it lied in our episode on apostasy and falling away, and that's where it lies on this doctrine. Um, there you go. It is not so much, you know, what what do we have confidence and faith in in our perseverance and preservation? We agree, you know, it, we wholeheartedly agree. Um, what we disagree on is just whether that means every single individual believer will is guaranteed to, to persevere. You know what I mean? Um, be, because that person can reject Christ, just like any person can reject Christ, you know? Um, and that is the only thing that is going to prevent you from persevering, not the schemes of the devil or man or God failing you or giving up on you. You know what I mean? Um, mm. it's, it's you choosing to reject him. And that's true of every person. Um, you know, th those who were brought up in the church or not, um, the only thing that can separate you from God is you rejecting him. Um, and, and, and I don't, th I don't think that something that that statement is, you know, I don't think that's something we disagree on that statement itself. Yeah. Um, right. We, we, as we've seen throughout this very long conversation, we work, we disagree on certain, you know, ways that that shakes out, but that's, you know, we've already, we've already discussed those things. So. Right. <laughs> um, well, so maybe we'll just conclude here and, and, and conclude, I guess, by saying like, first of all, thank you for making it through two hours and 17 minutes and 10 seconds or whatever up to this point. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, you deserve a reward for that alone. But yeah. we, like we said, we didn't want to break it up. We didn't want to make it into, you know, a five part episode and then, you know, lose interest maybe over the time. So I, I understand like a lot of people probably didn't make it this far. Um, but if you did, we really do appreciate it. And thank you because, at the end of the day, we're not, again, we're not trying to convince you to become tulip followers. We're not trying to make you Calvinists. We're not trying to make you Arminian. We're not trying to make you um, anything other than, um, you know, mature, um, thoughtful followers of Christ as you seek to understand these things. Because, um, like I said in the beginning, just because it's difficult, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't wrestle with them, try to come to understand them. Because God has given us an ability to reason, to interpret, to to learn um, and in his body, it is a diverse body, both ethnic, uh, ethnically and, um, you know, in a myriad of ways. And especially um, in an episode like this, we see that we can have some differences of, of opinion, differences of interpretation. But at the end of the day, it doesn't break our fellowship. It doesn't break um, the fact that we are the body. You know, I cannot say to Lucas, because I'm an eye and he's a hand, that I have no use for you hand. Mm. Um but you are a part of the body just as much as I am. And mm -hmm. so for that, I'm thankful. And I know that like on this podcast, we've seen time and time again where we where we are in agreement. And those are the things that that really, 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 really matter and, and are important. So where we disagree, it's, it's fun to uh, debate and talk about. But at the end of the day, you're still my brother and I appreciate that. Yeah, and I just want to say that I really appreciate um, 
Whoops, my bad. <laughs> I, I think I did that on accident somehow. <laughs> I uh, just want to say that I really appreciate the conversation and um, like appreciate you hearing hearing me out. I, I, I feel like I, I hope that I made you feel like I was hearing you out. Um, and definitely um, I'm extremely grateful to have this conversation uh, with a brother. And, and like you said, we may disagree on these points, um, but what we do agree on is much greater. And, and, and it's not just about agreement. It's just about what is true, which is that um, we are sinners saved by grace through um, the work of Christ. And we, we trust him and, and we seek to follow him and, and, and make him known um, among all people. And we hope that um, that, you know, spirit of thankfulness and, and gratefulness to, to Christ comes through and, and that even in our disagreement that it, we, we hope to have done it in a, in a charitable way. And I know that I feel like, you know, you gents have, have helped, uh, not helped, have, have shown that to me um, today and also just as long as I've known you. So, um <laughs> Cool. Hopefully you feel the same and, and, yeah. and um, hopefully it, it comes through in, in our, in our episodes, in our discussions. So um, I, I'm going to uh, close with a, with a brief collect um, from the Book of Common Prayer. Today's the fourth Sunday of Easter as we're recording this. It's a, there we go. it's Good Shepherd Sunday. It's, you know, it won't be when you listen to it, but this is, this is the appropriate prayer for today. So, um, oh God, whose son, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of your people Grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And um, yeah, I just, again, want to reiterate our heartfelt thanks for listening um, to any part of, but especially if you listen to the whole thing of today's gargantuan episode of the doxology podcast we really appreciate i don't know if we'll it. ever beat it this might be the longest ever. yeah it might be <laughs> I, I don't know if it's something i want to beat anytime soon <laughs> nope um if you'd like to connect with us um, you can hit us up on twitter or instagram at doxology podcast you can always email us at doxology podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear your feedback questions episode ideas um and we'd love to connect so um yeah please uh continue to um, share, like, comment, uh, you know, uh, leave ratings, whatever it is that uh, you do on your, you know, podcast app of choice. Um, and we, we really appreciate all the support and um, especially on uh, an episode like this, we really appreciate mm-hmm. all the support. So thanks again and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I am so sweaty. <laughs> <laughs>